Hey everyone, welcome back to season three of Decoded. My name is Sydney Lai. And if you are new here, thank you so much for joining me and a bunch of other devs. I'm here based in New York City. And I am just so excited for this year, this new season. I think we're gonna have a really fun time because we're gonna be talking to a lot of engineers who are also builders, specifically understanding what they are building, how they are launching for adapting to upcoming changes in technology and frameworks. And I think this also sets the stage of me wanting to personally invite y'all to come join us at the Al Systems Developer Conference that's happening in November of 2021. OSDC, we have this every year. We're gonna have 50 plus technical sessions from developers across 150 other countries. And it's gonna be really, really fun because we're gonna to cover topics like building a reactive web development or basically optimizing for scale or architecture. And we're also going to have different emerging tech for also intermediate and advanced devs who are building IoT projects, blockchain enablement, AI assisted types of development, all this kind of stuff. So I highly encourage you all joining Otherwise, let's just hang out as a podcast in your pocket. And today we are going to be talking to a really fun special guest, Jeff from Software Engineering Daily. It's a podcast that I've been listening to for over the years now. For some time, I I can't remember if it was 2016 or so, but that's probably when I started. And really the point is that it has just been really a podcast series and lesson or part of the educational framework as a developer that I've been listening to. So I'm really excited to invite you into that world as well. And I would have to say it has been such a huge inspiration and influence of how I imagine Decoded being a source of education uh, for those who are learning of what's upcoming in development, what's upcoming in the landscape of developer tools, developer platforms, of uh, building the next generation of tech companies and really helping uh, existing companies go through that technological transition as well. So super excited. Let's dive in. All right, so we are gonna just jump in and I'm so excited for Jeff Meyerson to be joining us today. He is the host of Software Engineering Daily. It is a podcast that I've been listening to for a few years now and it has been such a pillar of my education as an engineer. And when he first got started as a dev, he worked at Amazon, eBay, but then quickly spun out and became a serial startup founder building so many different projects, one of which is the podcast media company itself. And you are not just a dev, you're also a content creator, a builder. And having gone through a thousand plus interviews and getting to interview both other software engineers and other tech founders, has it or how has it influenced the way you have and your outlook for the future of developer tools, developer platforms, a lot of these toolings for these devs. When I started the podcast, I wanted to index the entirety of the software ecosystem. And in that time, unfortunately, the world of software has expanded faster than I've been able to index it. So I literally can't get to everything. But what I have seen is essentially there's just an expanse of opportunity. And you as a builder can simply, if you're looking for something to do, you can simply just pursue your curiosity and aggressively switch from thing to thing to thing to thing until you find something that really seems to scratch an itch for you. And then you pursue that with a little bit more vigor and take a little bit more solutions-oriented approach. And that can allow you to, to both find the technological solutions that can empower you more aggressively and sort of a course correct you towards product development opportunity. So like a lot of this has been just a journey of thinking about what sort of product development strategy works for me. I knew that I wanted to build stuff. And a lot of this has just been about sorting out my own ideology. So it sounds like it was also an iterative approach for you and having the injection of, if not new ideas, new frameworks, new stacks guiding you along that path. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And when it comes to just how you understand where development is going. 
at the very highest level, like what are some of your reflections? Because having followed just your train of thought or even the topics that you've covered, it feels like almost overnight you transitioned very quickly from web two to web three, or you really moved very granularly from understanding different languages and frameworks all the way up up, up, up level um, to interviewing someone like Ben from MakerPad, um, which I really enjoyed that episode, by the way, and really enjoy what Ben's been working on. But I guess the point that I'm trying to say is you have been tackling just the tools and solutions for developers across several years. And yeah, I guess like on a high level, where do you think this landscape is going and transforming into? Really what we're talking about is the palette that we're painting with. What are the things that you could put on that palette? What are the ways that you can blend the different paint things on that palette and like make your new colors. And then how do you like paint effectively? Personally, I'm really bad at painting. I've tried it a few times. I'm like, I'm just very terrible at it, but I know that with practice, I can get better and I can learn how to mix paint better and stuff like that. And so really where things are going is, it's kind of hard to encapsulate but I think the the best way of understanding where things are going is simply to just mess around and experiment with stuff. So I I don't think I have a concise answer for you. Like low code is really exciting, right? Crypto stuff is really exciting. All these things are really exciting. You can do a lot of things with them. Rather than trying to think about like, where is everything going? I just try to think of what's something that I can build that would be exciting and what are some cutting edge tools that I could do that would be useful in that endeavor. Gotcha. And so are you... Are you then naturally drawn to platforming tools? I mean, I think one of the challenges that I see with the landscape, and this is just one perspective, is understanding how do you bridge that adoption gap? I'd love to learn more about what do you think of some of the challenges as so many different types of devs are trying to, one, they have they have like attention and bandwidth constraints. And then there's so many tools that does it fit into their stack in terms of uh, building and even just kind of like this term of like the rise of a platform engineers, is that is that kind of alienating? Is that too hard to pinpoint? So platform engineering is like modern platform engineering is sort of the idea that for any given company, there's a scalable model, a scalable horizontal model for how software gets built within the company. And because there are so many new tools and new like quote unquote platforms and new APIs and new plugins, new integrations, and all kinds of things, you really can choose your own adventure when it comes to what kinds of platform you want to build. There used to be kind of a tension between what's my day one like developer experience, like what's my day one, like how am I getting this thing off the ground? There used to be a tension between that and how do you get to like, how do you scale or whatever? The modern tools like Firebase, for example, kind of reduce that to a negligible compromise. It, and, it's, and it's actually just, you can build on day one and the day one tools scale to the day end tools. So we live in, in, in pretty cool times in terms of platform engineering because really this, the same tools of the, as the individual, the solo, the solo builder can, can scale their tools to being a full platform suite. Yeah, I think that there are some trends of companies moving away from almost antiquated stacks. I don't know if antiquated is really the right word, but long, long ago, one of my first frameworks was Ruby on Rails. And I think Twitter was built on that. I don't know if Twitter is on that anymore. I think Airbnb is recently moving away from React, right? And so there's all these transitions, but what what you're essentially saying is that some of these frameworks are so sophisticated nowadays, you can use it to launch very quickly or you can use it to scale very well. Is that what you were getting at? Yeah, I mean, I think the tools today, you can actually do both. You can launch quickly and you can scale quickly with pretty much the same tool chain. There's a lot of companies that are in a really unfortunate position where they're using something like, I mean, I don't want to name a specific technology, but there's technologies that I would never, ever, 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 ever want to work with. I would want nothing to do with it. And and if a company was using that technology, if a company was based around that technology, I would just never go and work at that company. You know, some people might disagree with that, but I just I just think there's stacks that are not worth working with anymore. And it's unfortunate, but like, you know, some of those companies are going to have to be put out to pasture eventually. Gotcha. Is that just part of the process of, I don't know if Darwinism is the right word, but essentially, you know, out with the old and with the new, we'll see how the world transforms with different types of technologies. Well, it's like, I don't think we have, I mean, in most of the United States, we're not using wood burning stoves to heat our houses, right? And if somebody was like, hey, like I've still got like a house that uses a wood burning stove. Do you want to buy it? You probably say, "Nah, I don't think so. I don't really want to like have smoke inside of my house in winter." 
but that's basically what a lot of companies have in their terms of their stacks. And so like, it's just not, it's not pretty. Yeah. Why do you think it's such a big challenge for these almost, I don't know if antiquated is the right word, but these legacy enterprises to migrate over, I mean, one, I guess it's necessary, right? And then why is it so difficult for them to do that migration? Um, have you yourself having worked at such big companies all the way down to the own projects that you build? You can't replatform in many cases. It's just too hard. The migration takes too much work. It's too thorny. It's like all the people who built the original technology stack have left the company. It's like working in an archaeological dig. It's like saying, hey, we've got like an archaeological dig that stretches 50 acres. Can we go move this to a different state? You can't like move the entire thing to a different state. It's like an archaeological dig. So then would the solution be for resilience, for the longevity of a tech company, would the solution be something similar to where Facebook either acquires or spends out their own projects or AWS with like 173 plus services? Is it to build micro products and solutions within the company rather than some really old school tech company that is just trying to make their software continuously work, something like that? Well, so, okay, there's a few things here. So I think that the general question that you're asking is, how do you avoid becoming a terrible legacy technology company that nobody wants to work at? Like, is that kind of the general question that you're, that you're aiming at? You know, it's, it's not actually that. That's a great question. You're welcome to answer that. But I think what I was really trying to understand is that with a lot of these tech companies, is the answer not to turn them into cloud companies, but is the answer to create in-house products or acquire other products, kind of like how Facebook ages, right? Or how Amazon quote ages. They have like other startups, other products, other offerings. So you're talking generally, generally speaking, how should a company mature intelligently? Yeah, almost. Especially when when they're a legacy tech company. If you want to call Facebook and Google a legacy tech company. I, right. I know, but. Right. You know, there's a lot of ways to to mature gracefully. A lot of it has to do with well, if you're fa- if you're Facebook or Google or Amazon, you basically say like, what is our infrastructure language? And each of these companies has chosen Java as the infrastructure language, which is fine. Java is a great infrastructure language, and Java allows you to build very future-proof solutions, well architected, easy to understand, well documented, like kind of self-documenting code, very explicit. And so that's one way to future-proof. Another way to future-proof is to sort of build, and this is kind of how I think about my own companies and my own projects, is to build a little bit more modularity and a little bit more failure tolerance into the overall system. Like, how do you build a system such that your company builds products so quickly and aggressively that any product within your product suite could die and you'd be fine? For example, like if like Amazon can't really do this in some sense, right? Because if AWS dies, it's sort of like it's like a, arguably a single point of failure for the whole company. Company like the, the company fails, right? Like if AWS, some, I mean AWS is not going to die, right? But if it somehow did disappear, the company would just be completely undermined because AWS is how everything is built within the company. So it's a kind of a fabricated scenario. But I'm just all I'm trying to say is. There's a lot of companies out there that are essentially built around some monolithic infrastructure, and the monolithic infrastructure is really hard to deal with. It's really hard to grapple with. It's really hard to, to break apart and to bust apart. And to, I've worked at places where literally like half of my onboarding process was understanding like the shims that were put over this giant monolith and understanding the different layers, like the number of times where an API had been papered over just so that it, this thing was like slightly more usable. That's like how that's like how a lot of archaic software development works. That's not a good strategy these days. Like you really want to have a more resilient and decentralized and decoupled strategy. Yeah, and and I think that you were talking about not having a certain or a central point of failure as being critical for a lot of these companies, a lot of these tech companies to grow. And I, I think that when we look at Amazon, and I'm talking about. Amazon.com. I'm talking about the OG, hear some books, buy some books, right? I mean, you probably know more, but it, it was this technically created like pre-cloud. Is that the idea? Were they essentially a pre-cloud company? And then obviously with AWS and just the way the industry has, transfor- has transformed, they became a post-cloud company or current cloud company. Yeah. I mean, they define the cloud. Like they were arguably the first cloud company because they made the cloud. They started as just servers in Jeff Bezos's garage. Yeah, that's right. That's good which point. is not very fault tolerant because, like, if your garage burns down, there goes a, there goes Amazon. I think they probably had some rolling backup system, 
some rolling backup remote system or, or something like that. But but by and large, they were just not fault tolerant at all. Fault tolerance was kind of an afterthought in the 90s when you're just struggling to get your servers off the ground. Right, right. Because you had even all of that just to maintain. And I think what you described so far is that at the end of the day, for the most part, for the most part, there are some toolings that you're against, but for the most part, whatever tools that are needed to get the developers to build, that's where you think it's headed. It's not about necessarily like which tribe or which camp you're in, but what kind of tools do these developers need to access to build whatever MVP they need to get started with? Is that the understanding? I don't want to be super prescriptive here. I, you know, in fact, I think like part of what is the modus operandi of my whole media operation is is sort of we're in really, really new territory. The whole creative endeavor of building software, building software or building with software, which are two you know distinct things, it's just really new. And you don't want to be too opinionated about it. You like you want to be as opinionated about it maybe as you are opinionated about like, what's our strategy for playing a game of basketball? Right? Like like I'm playing one-on-one basketball with with a, with an opponent, like a new opponent I've never played with before. What's my strategy? Like, do I take jump shots? Do I take a lot of three-pointers? You can do whatever you want. You can try different things. Nobody can really tell you you're wrong. Right. And I would imagine that also comes from just having been a long-term investor in the space of developer tools and, and meeting with so many different projects. I think that also what I've been seeing is just the surge of AI-assisted development, right? So AI-assisted type of IDEs and toolings that really, uh, Kite as an example, kite.ai. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's kind of like Grammarly, but instead of you typing out what kind of syntax you want to write, it auto predicts almost what you're going to write and based off of that logic. And I think you just mentioned that there's actually a difference between building software. And then I think you said building something with software. You had said it so well, but I think as there is a transition to more of a declarative type approach of creating or building with I guess, where do you land with just even AI system development? Is that removing kind of like the agency from developers or or it's really the developers who are providing that agency to build? So with AI-assisted stuff, it's at this point, as far as I know, it's kind of where the smart reply system, the smart reply of like the Gmail smart reply system, this is why Gmail is impossible to beat. This is why Superhuman probably won't be able to beat Gmail. It's just you can't beat Google at this game. And you probably can't beat GitHub or slash Microsoft at the game of smart code composition. So, I mean, the idea of like, I tab over, like I press tab and I complete a line of code, that's a bottomless problem set. It's really, really hard to solve. It's it's just a very, very huge developer ergonomics set of problems, as big as the smart reply system was at Google. And, and much like smart reply, it kind of surprised us in how fast it came. And uh, it's gonna surprise us in terms of how fast it advances it's still not going to solve software development. It's just kind of like a low-level implementation detail or tool overall. It's not going to like, it's going to be a while until we have like smart reply for your, like your Y Combinator application, right? Like, and like figuring out what your what your product actually is. So what you've been saying is that AI system development is not going to completely automate everything. At the very least, it's just going to be supplementary. And at the end of the day, a lot of these battles are led or won by Google's AI anyways. And, and I think- what you were trying to illustrate is that it's not really so much the tooling that we should be focused on. It's actually on the products that has AI baked in. Like those are more interesting than just the toolings themselves. You can think of AI like AI is like the invention of the API where it's like, okay, the idea of an API is very useful and you can apply the concept of an API to many different domains, but you still need to think about what is the service area of the API? What is the API doing? Can you build a business around this API? In the case of some artificial intelligence thing, like where do I get the data to feed into this thing? How am I like sustaining it over time? So it's, so it's kind of just like this lower level tooling thing. It's hard to like make really, really broad generalizations about it right now. Right, and even with the landscape of the current landscape of AI assisted IDEs or just dev platforms in general, what do you think is some of like the challenges and just the migration or adoption of other developers uh, for either typical tools or or just going back and sticking with the stacks that they're most comfortable with? You should rapidly adopt new tools all the time. You want to be careful about how rapidly you adopt them. So this is actually one reason why it's useful to watch the venture capital ecosystem quite closely 
when a series A for a developer tool gets done, that's a sign to start watching the tool very seriously. When a series B gets done for it, that's a sign to start investing in the tool firsthand. So if you're thinking about like like tooling adoption, you can really watch the venture capitalists and you can sort of make judgments based on that. That's actually very, very eye-opening. I think that's a really good point. I mean, there's different levels of adoption for developers. Some are, it's hard to see if the industry is going to adopt this tool, adopt the stack. But if you're saying like really, really early on and, and devs who want to be, who wants to keep learning, if you look at a VC fund who has put capital and energy and other devs behind building a product that has already raised a series B, that's a really, really good point in terms of like, hey, this is coming. They have gone through this chasm. This is, they're going to finish their rounds and it's going to be a tool that's going to be widely, at the very least, widely implemented. And I think that when it comes to tool adoption, one of the things that I really resonated with you on is that, you know, you mentioned that back in the day, in like even Ethereum's like first token sale, you were there, you were, you were learning and working with some of the wallets. It was really, really confusing. And I think that when you're building either a consumer facing tool, or if you want to call it a you know consumer facing, maybe even devs, when you have a nascent air quotes, nascent industry, you have all these toolings or even products. Toolings could also be truffle, so on and so forth. If it's hard to use, if it's hard to adopt, it really makes it difficult for even one generation or one batch of developers to be able to build whatever technology is needed for this emerging industry. And so when you have yourself experienced this transition of Web 2 to Web 3 tooling, or you yourself experiencing a Web 3 consumer application and you yourself are an engineer and you're like, hey, this is, I, I don't get it. I'm going to, I'm going to look at this later. What do you think is needed for this bridge for Web 2 software engineers to really adopt Web 3 frameworks? May it be Solidity, Truffle, IPFS, so on and so forth. I'm actually really glad you asked the question. I just started a company with my friend Yad around solving this problem. So it's, it's called Rectangle. Basically, the idea is there's really no, just from the money standpoint, there's no bridging infrastructure between fiat and crypto. There's just not good bridging infrastructure. And so that's kind of like the beachhead is like, how do we bridge fiat and crypto? But more generally, it's exactly what you're saying. Like, how do you bridge Web 3 and Web 2? Everything's terrible to work with today. What's the like set of infrastructure solutions that gets us there? And I think it looks like something that we've never seen before. So that's why it's called Rectangle. I like that. I like that. And so when you're talking about bridging infrastructure, are you talking about the bridge between fiat and crypto or just stacks in general, technical stacks in general? Well, so fiat and crypto is really the first thing that needs to happen. Like, quick anecdote, like three years ago, I'm at the Kubernetes conference in, um, I think it was Barcelona. And almost as like a like a joke, I just started asking Kubernetes people what they thought of crypto. This was so actually this was like right in the run up to the crash, the 2017 crash or 20, like 2017, early 2018 crash. I was asking people like what they thought of crypto and all the Kubernetes people thought that crypto was a joke. And I was like, no, no, no. So so things have been validated at this point. Like this is a real technology. It's actually important. And they're like, yeah, go away. I don't want to talk to you. That's basically where we're still at where you have this large cadre of developers that have an allergy to crypto. And then you have the crypto people who are like playing in their own lane and they're not thinking really clearly about how to like make this stuff accessible and make this stuff usable. Or if they are thinking about it, their solutions are not really gaining enough traction. So there's something wrong here. Rectangle is all about exploring what's wrong and how to fix it. Probably there's a bajillion companies that are going to get built in this middleware space, like this, uh, like, I don't know, maybe you call it web 2.5. Like maybe that's where we are today. We're in 2.5 or 2.3. Like we're making the transition to web three. Web three is, is a dream relative to where we stand today. Like we're, we're nowhere close to the web three vision where you have like decentralized Airbnb. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think just from what I've observed so far, I think that there is this unimaginable gap that the developer has to cross over. So if you if you have your build set up a certain way, your backend set up a certain way, and if Web3 
technologies and projects and products are saying, hey, you need to throw all of that structure out the door. And this is kind of the, the new forward. I would imagine it's almost hard to digest, although it depends on just the risk profile of the developer, you being a poker player yourself, not only do you have a higher tolerance for risk, but you're also very calculated to minimize that risk, I would imagine, right? And so when it comes to the adopting the different infrastructures, at least one of the approach that I do, and, and I still work with a lot of other primarily Web2 software engineers, and I show them how very palatably how to build a crypto wallet, even with like one of the tools that I use is the OutSystems IDE, where you can build an interoperable protocol agnostic wallet. It can be Ethereum, can be whatever it is. But the the whole idea is, is almost removing the quote, scary, unknown technologies. And, and at the end of the day, this is coming re- regardless. And this is kind of to your point, like whatever companies are have raised their series B, these companies are coming, these technologies, this demand is coming. The industry is demanding this type of adoption, regardless if you like it or not. And at the end of the day, either you as a dev or you as a company are going to build towards this direction or it will be built with or without you. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, let's go. Why hasn't there been an open source OutSystems equivalent? An open source OutSystems equivalent. That's a really great question. I know that there was, at least in the industry, in the industry, there was Dap Hero. Dap Hero was launched at uh, ETH Denver for some time. They didn't have product market fit. When it comes to dev tools in general, well, I guess the question is, are you talking about open source IDE tooling that allows any kind of interoperable build? Is it like Web3 native? Are you talking about... So it doesn't have to use crypto, like literally. So my, my point here is just like how early we are. So crypto is by its nature open source. Like you can't really do crypto in a meaningful way without doing open source. And open source itself is really nascent. So like we just got like Kubernetes, what we, we got like six years ago, five years ago. So we literally just got the open source basis for building distributed systems. That's how early we are. So my point is just that on the road to Web3, Web3 is like everything's open source, everything has open payment systems. We're so far from that. Like we don't even have open source out systems. We don't even have open source Instacart, right? Like why isn't there open source e-commerce? That doesn't work yet. Nobody's doing that. So we're just really, really, really early to all this stuff. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Where is the open source infrastructure for launching and building e-commerce tools? right? Even for a very long time, arguably MetaMask was open source. MetaMask is a, it can be a Chrome extension. It's essentially a Web3 wallet to hold your crypto and your NFTs on chain, whatever it is. But even just recently, what's upcoming is Consensus is actually closing that open source. So it's becoming privatized. So there are projects, even there's this team, you can check them out. It's called Thesis, thesis.co. They are looking to build yeah, they're looking to build a challenger wallet to do exactly that and to essentially compete against or signal against, hey, what is with all of these closed source toolings? I know that, yeah, I think it depends. I think that some libraries are open source, some some applications are open source. It really depends. But I think at the end of the day, what I'm hearing from you is that it is so nascent, so much at this point, so many people have heard of it from a consumer level. On another point, so many developers are aware of it, but how, how do they build towards it? How do they build for it. And even though we've heard about Web3 is coming all the way back from 2014, a lot of these toolings and products were just so inaccessible. And how do we how do we make this uh, more accessible, right? How do you make building the infrastructure more accessible? And I think this is what your point is, is that Rectangle is really looking to tackle making infrastructure, well, is it more Web3 friendly or is it more Web2 developer friendly? That's my clarity. It's both. It's both. Uh, So, I mean, there were SMS solutions before Twilio. There were payment solutions before Stripe. But we like we want to be the best developer experience for the intermediary between the Web3 world and the Web2 world. We want to really supercharge that transition. And maybe even taking a step back, even just from from like the blockchain landscape, if if we're just looking at developer builds in general, do you, from your intuition, do you know what the appetite of just 
and devs are very, very broad. So we could start with that. If that's too broad, we can we can funnel funnel down. But is there an overall appetite that you're seeing of what devs are either migrating towards in the tooling landscape or preferred stacks or what they even want to build? Yeah, I mean, developer preferences are always changing. And I would say that like, when you ask that question, the, th- the thing that comes to mind really is like, what's your platform as a service these days? So if you're developing a new product, what is your platform as a service? And you really have a plethora of options these days. You can be archaic and go with raw AWS resources, or you can do render.com or Netlify or Vercel or Firebase or Supabase or this or that. And it's... Or you can be entirely low code. So it's like literally like, what do you want to build with? What, at what level of abstraction do you want to build? You want to start with Figma. Like I start with Figma. Actually, I start with Google Docs and then I go from Google Docs to Figma. Or like I start with a slide Ooh, deck. Like I start with a slide deck. I love that. Like, That's a good point. Figma is where to go. As far as I'm concerned, Figma is the place to go if you're a builder. That's where you should start because you should have a top-down development process. Some people might disagree with me, but yeah, I like Figma. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, I think... I think it's really just entertaining to even consider Google Docs or a notepad as your first developer tool. And that gets the foundations there. That gets the ideas, the direction, what you're trying to solve, what you're trying to build. I think that when it comes to just what devs are building towards, I mean, how much of it, like how much of it is driven by innate intrigue or market demand or user demand? And I just think market demand and user demand very differently in the sense of market demand is this is where the capital is, let's run towards it, or this is just what we so desperately need in the industry. And then, of course, industry is so varied for developers. I think really the source of gravity is what allows us to do work as fast as possible and as productively as possible. And so that source of gravity is going to pull you towards tools that naturally fit your style. And those that's different for different people. I think there are pretty much what I would consider best solutions, but I'm not really going to opine because I, I'm going to set off like a cultural firestorm. But yeah, I mean, I, I think different strokes for different for different folks. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. And I think that when it comes to just even appetite for new industries or new technologies, as you kind of mentioned, like I think that crypto or blockchain, so blockchain specifically, maybe not even, not even crypto, I mean, blockchain even arguably different strokes for different folks. You're either very for it, you're very against it. One could even argue just the battle or conversations of of implementing microservices into your tech stack. If if companies should should move that towards that direction, where are you with that? In terms of should developers adopt web3 stuff? Well, I think even just looking at another layer of abstraction is looking at do microservices create more problems depending on what you're building or or is it the strategy to go? But, you know, as I'm saying this out loud, I guess it really depends on what you're building. It depends on the the life cycle or the stage or the age of the company, of the company itself. But I mean, hearing what you've said so far, I think you're very against a single points of failure. Is that what I'm understanding? Well, I mean, since you bring up microservice, so like, let me try to explain how I think about things architecturally. Like, If I'm building a new product or a company, I would prefer to be building in a terrain where I don't even have to think about microservices or monoliths. So like, I literally want to think about what's the level I can play at where I can like be, so it's like on deck, for example, you know, the company on deck, right? It's like on deck is built mostly with low code tools. Far as I can tell, at least a lot of the internal tools that I've seen, they, they, they like string together Airtable. It's like Airtable and Slack and uh, I don't know, Coda, like these different things. And it's a really successful company. And I think they're just playing in it. They're playing in a world that that sets them apart in so many different ways from so many different companies. Now, if you're building an infrastructure company, like if you're building Rectangle, Rectangle probably has to do some microservices. But hopefully we can do microservices in a way, like hopefully we've learned from the last five or six years of microservice disasters that we can find some way of of dealing with this stuff that's not so painful. As you kind of mentioned, there's different paths for developers to solve various issues, right? It can go it can go anywhere for what is the most minimal type of tooling that I need? Does that solve a big issue or does it go towards all the way to a rectangle of like, hey, this landscape is dealing with a big issue. We actually have to reframe or reformat. So so then that question is really are we are we reframing 
how Web3 is built or, you know, to your point, is this still too early? It's not even about reframing or, or quote, fixing. It's about setting the path for the next generation of developers to build more effectively frictionless. You know, I think we need different solutions at all areas of the stack. We need people building better microservice platforms. We need people building better low-code tools. We need people building better rectangles. We need all all this kind of stuff. And there's a market demand for all of it. And it really just comes down to a question of, it's more developer constrained than anything else. Who are the developers that are, that are going to build this stuff? Who are going to build this next generation of tools? Yeah, I think developer constraint is always a pretty big topic. And I, I even remember maybe maybe 2014 to 2016, where you had so many boot camps popping up trying to solve that issue. Then you had kind of like the second generation of boot camps, and it could be like kind of a Lambda school type deal. Do you think that with the developers constraints, does that influence the changing definition of developers? Is the next generation of developers going to look differently? Or is that actually just a natural progression of technologies being created that enables people to build kind of regardless if they're a software engineer or not? The place that we're headed is is the post-commodity worker area. So the post-commodity worker area is a zone of software development where we don't really have as much title constraint. So we don't have software development engineer one. We don't have product manager one. We don't have principal engineer. We don't have these highly generalized titles. Basically, we have companies that hire people to do tasks. Those tasks may change over time. Their nominal titles may change over time. Their tools may change over time. Generally speaking, somebody's brought into a company to fulfill a role that they have the skills to fulfill. And many of the skills that we need done today are like, we need a software engineer to do this. We need a software engineer to build this thing. But if we're talking about building software companies in five to 10 years, it may look very different. Like maybe like Figma is like the new software engineer. Like you need Figma designers more than any other task. That's a really, really good point. I mean, I've heard somewhere, I don't know exactly where, but someone had said that it's really, really hard to either outsource or automate design because design is so culturally related. User behavior is so different. I mean, you probably heard even back, back, back in the day that Yahoo Japan, the landing page itself was so different than the typical quote Western or US landing page because the behavior, the use case behavior is different. The desired features are different, but nonetheless, that was I was kind of tangenting. Well, no, to, to that to that point, to that point, companies are way too territorial with their design language. Mm. So Apple, for example, I would never want to be a designer at Apple. Like, no offense to Apple designers, but like, yes, I know exactly. I don't really want to like have a company breathing down my neck with like what kind of product design language I have to use. If I'm joining Apple, I'm joining because I'm a badass artist, and I, and you should give me creative freedom to develop. If I want to develop tie dye colored AirPods that like have a string between them. Like, cause having two AirPods is the dumbest design decision I've ever seen. Uh, and people love it. Like I should be able to do that. But Apple is so locked down with their design language that they, that there's no federation of design. So I just say this with regard to your point about, can you outsource design? Yes, you absolutely can. In fact, you probably should. If like, if you're, if you have the ability to, if you have a service provider that is willing to do your design for you, you probably should do that. So I guess to your point that some designs or some bills can still be, quote, commoditized, but nonetheless, your vision is that, or your belief is that we are entering a post-commodity workforce, or at least at the very least, um, post-commodity engineer, kind of the tiers that you were explaining about engineers. And therefore, does that mean you are also then still, if not bullish, very, very for just open source creation, open source developer tools, open source projects being built, bullish on DAOs maybe, yeah, I'm bullish on all that stuff. I mean, you want to take all the oxygen out of the room at all times. And if you're building, so like OutSystems, for example, like I love OutSystems. OutSystems was a sponsor of the company of Software Engineering Daily like two or three years ago. I did you know some interview content about OutSystems and, and just the software is very interesting. The use cases are very interesting. Where I think the company has a weak point is, like I said, though, there's no open source thing. Like OutSystems is like a really, really cool concept. And actually not, not a lot of people know about it. So like if I were running OutSystems, literally like my number one priority would be to spin up a Skunk Works that makes open source OutSystems. Because right now, if somebody makes open source OutSystems and makes it better and takes all the oxygen out of the room, then 
ultimately OutSystems will be a legacy business because you know the open source provider, the open source system is just going to be kind of a more powerful concept. And you're talking about an open source IDE itself or or a library or a suite of applications? So the way I see OutSystems, the thing that impresses me about OutSystems is basically it is low code. It is the it is the pre-low code, low code. It is your way of building domain-specific mobile applications and and desktop experiences. Like if I'm managing an e-commerce company, like I've built, like let's say I've boot, let's say I started with a dropshipping e-commerce company, and now I want to build my own fulfillment centers. I've got to have apps that the people who are managing my fulfillment centers use to figure out where to pack stuff. Like where if I'm walking around this huge warehouse, where do I go? What do I do? You need to have a domain-specific application for these warehouse workers. It's not so domain-specific that you need engineers building it, so you use OutSystems. Use OutSystems to to build this like domain-specific thing that's like slightly higher than low-level, and like that's great. That is such a great and large, deceptively giant niche for OutSystems, which is why the company continues to grow and grow and grow and grow. However, if you want to be future-proof as a company, you literally have to be open source. You have to be open source because your defensible advantage is still there. You can still have the challenge of how do you host this stuff? How do you build CICD pipelines? How do you do software development? How do you do management? How do you do payments? How do you do sales? How do you do marketing? How do you do all these different things that are the core competency of a company, but not like you don't want to be building your company around closed source software. And that is why we are so early as a software industry. Mm-hmm. I know that we do have our Forge store, which is our version of the open source GitHub, as an example, with our repos, with our libraries. But the core technology is not open source, But the right? core technology. Do you, and do you think most tools should be open source as well? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one is definitely check out Consensus. I know for a long time, Consensus really pushed out a lot of their own toolings, a lot of it was privatized, a lot of it was closed source. Like I said, they're, I think, very close to closing or they've already closed MetaMask. However, they're also, oddly enough, doing a course reversal where all of these tools, these baseline infrastructure tools are now becoming open source as well, right? I think as engineers, we, we at the very least, are just wanting to make sure that all tools are accessible, all tools have longevity. And yeah, I do agree with you. I think it's like, how do we how do we tackle open source internally as a team? And how do we tackle open source also for just any kind of tools that we want to use to build the next generation of products, of tech companies? And, and you know, with that being said, I'm super excited to see where Square is going. I'm sure you have something launching pretty soon. And how can the community or the audience support you? What's the best way to learn more about Square or participate in Square. You mean or, rectangle. Or sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Rectangle. That's all right. You know, I drew I drew a little square or rectangle on my piece of paper. And now I'm looking, I'm like, that's not a square, Sydney. That is obviously a picture of a rectangle. Well, so, note that squares are rectangles, right? Or what was it? But, no, but, but yes. No, is it rectangles or squares? I can't even remember. I can't ever remember. I remember taking geometry. Oh, I do okay. remember that. Okay, so let's figure this out on air. Okay, so squares, all the sides are the same. Rectangles... Right. You have two pairs of sides that are parallel, I think. That's all you need. And two and two must be parallel. Oh. No, two pairs of sides that are parallel. I think that's all. That's the only constraint of a rectangle. So every square is a rectangle, right? Because both pairs of sides are parallel in a square. So every square is a rectangle. So square is actually a rectangle subset. So they're within the same family class. So, I mean, so did I misspeak or... Well, you miss you misspoke in the sense that our 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 company name is not Square. There is, you know, <laughs> there's another one called Square. There's another Sorry, one. Jack. I've heard of it. Yeah, there's a I've yeah, no. Who can who can follow? But yeah, with rectangle, I mean, look, we've already been nerding out about infrastructure and various protocols. I'm I'm super excited to say the very least. How can we best support? I guess at the very at the very least. As other support, engineers, support, is, support rectangle or support me or support yeah. So well, rectangle, rectangle, you, so all, all of <laughs> okay. the above. I'm a fan. All I'm right. here for okay. this. Okay. Well, rectangle, rectangle is nascent. We should have actually the open source project is probably going to be released by this weekend, and it's basically going to be absolutely nothing. So, like, <laughs> literally, it's going to be like like an oh hello world. So, we need a lot of help. So, if you're interested in busting people out of the the closed source dominance of payments providers. We'd love to have you involved. We're looking for our earliest employees. If you're looking to showcase your skills as an employee, 
definitely jump into the to the open source rectangle repo and we're going to be figuring out what what needs to be done to make this thing a reality. You know, this is going to be like a Kubernetes ecosystem for payments. So it's going to be huge. Okay, that's pretty exciting. There is just a team that is completely self-funded and there's so many projects that are tackling the payments infrastructure, especially in Web3. So I'm really excited to see what you're looking to do. I will definitely check out that repo. And Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you for being a listener, Sydney. I really appreciate it. And actually, I'll, I'll ask you, uh, I'm going to put you on the spot. I would like a piece of criticism for Software Daily. Oh, criticism, 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 criticism. Dig deep. Yeah, you know, okay, I'll share with what comes to mind first. And then maybe if I'll try to dig deeper. And please be honest. Please be honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I've been following Software Engineering Daily for some time now. And I think the transition was very confusing. I mean, this, I don't know if, yeah, my only criticism so far is like, all right, I am interested in a, like a plethora of different topics. I don't really know where to funnel myself into your podcast series. You have blockchain, you have just emerging technologies in general. You have something as granular as talking about Airbnb and React Natives, whatever, whatever that is. I think that's the first one. Number two is, okay, digging deeper. Love your slack. I wish it was more popping. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if that's a, Well, I think, you know, we got a message Anker Singh. Anker Singh, I think, is our community manager. Actually, he doesn't even have a title right now. He's just like nebulous mm-hmm. guy. So he might be community manager. Um, but like you can message him and be like, hey, make the Slack more pop. And he'll probably do that if you help him. Or if you want to help us out, like I would do. I, it's like we've got some stuff to do. We like definitely you're right about the Slack channel. Definitely you're right that it's kind of like a directionless, directionless pool of content that is Software Engineering Daily. That's kind of the point. Yeah, I mean, if it's the point, it's the point. I guess just well, one listener of like, like I mean, look, look you don't go to like Yellowstone Park and you're just there and it's like trees and like, you know, a geyser and you're just like, go wherever you want. There's a trail. So like, we should present you with some sort of trail to walk through. And we don't do that today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the trail would be nice, I think. But at the end of the day, I think it also just depends on your audience. If if your audience are other either technologists or other software engineers, and these are software engineers that enjoy kind of a plethora of toolings, infrastructures, as you can see, I ebb and flow between web two and web three, different types of stacks, different types of toolings, love open source, but also work in closed source products and tools as well. How else can I dig deep? Do we have too many ads? Is there too many ads? Should we do the pre-roll thing? Should we do the uh, Joe Rogan, like everything everything in the pre-roll thing? I mean, I, the thing is, I, we can do that. It just feels like it's underserving the advertisers. Like if we just lump every, if you lump everything at the beginning, everybody just skips it. Come on, like, let's be honest here. Right? No, I know exactly <laughs> what you mean. And I'd say with the pre-ads, I put them in the pre-roll. I don't, you, you lump I put it. it in the front. Oh, so you lump it. I lump it. I lump it. And and the reason is because when I started the podcast, I was, tr- I was essentially following the format of Joe Rogan, not the topics that he talks about, but just literally yeah, yeah, the logistical yeah. form. Yeah. yeah, just the logistical format. And even down to, I guess, the inspiration of just conversation. I think we have to go there eventually. I think that's that's where we have to go. It's really the, you know, really the struggle there is just we already have all these advertisers and telling them all of a sudden, hey, we're going to kind of like put you in a worse spot. Like, and then we have to like stack rank you. And then then it's like, do we sell? Do we price? Do we like, uh, do we do price segmentation based on who's first? Because clearly the first ad spot's like probably 10x more valuable than the second ad spot in, in actuality, right? I see. I see. And I think pushing this forward, I think this goes actually to the similar conversation of should technology be open source? Should toolings be open source? How should content and podcasts and media? Yeah. yeah I mean, it's like my whole thing away. has been like, yeah. can we just like talk about this stuff honestly and just share information rather than being so catty and territorial about our information? So it's like, We've seen what happens with the open source world when you open source stuff. It's like things just get better. Like we'd all just see more opportunities. There's no paucity of opportunity. So yeah, I'm I'm totally with you. Like basically the whole open source notion should extend to media construction. Yeah. If I can, and I'll touch on the media construction really quickly, but I'll even say when I was working in Mountain View, I was the technical lead on a mission operations platform. What that meant was this was a dashboard that allowed our clients to speak to our satellites. And before this open source platform, 
every solution before was completely closed. You had to have a huge subscription model. And when you're able to flip that on its head, then it changes the dynamic of who holds the power, which is other developers who needs this. And so if you are able to move a podcast, a media stream, a content away from essentially being, I guess, having to be sponsored, then you have a lot more ability to engage and yeah, engage your audience. And I also, and this is just one listener's perspective. I feel like software engineering daily is so well established. You have such a robust listening pool at this point. I I wonder if it can be moved away from a one source of revenue. I don't know if you have other sources of revenue, other product lines, and then that is now just reserved for either net new users or as an engagement tool. I don't know if it's like kind of the milk or at the grocery store, you know, that saying it's kind of like the loss leader. I don't know. Yeah, no, no, I see what you're saying. And we're definitely thinking about that. Yeah, there will be definitely news on that front in the near future. Yeah, I mean, thankfully, we actually just hired a new CEO to take care of this. Like, I'm not the product guy. I'm like the the figurehead. But like, but I, we, we're going to get our product house in order. We're going to get our community house in order. We have like so much work to do in product. I, I just, I'm going to be the microphone guy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, at the, <laughs> I think that that direction makes a lot of sense. I also think that as natural builders, there is a point in time where you then also pass that torch from a ideation, vision ideation launch to like, all right, this has been around for a few years. Let's kind of like formalize this or pivot this. And also with all of your transitional content moving into Web3, listen, I was like, Jeff is going to be building something in Web3. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I'm here for it. <laughs> if he's not building in something in Web3, there's no way. There's no way. You drink the Kool-Aid. He's too deep. He's an engineer at heart. He's going to have a vision for what needs to come. And so, yeah, I'm super excited for it. And we'll chat more. We'll chat offline. Um, would love to support you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yo, welcome back. What a ride. I am just still so happy that I got to chat with Jeff from Software Engineering Daily. It has been a podcast that I've been following for some time now, and I'm so happy to be able to share that with the rest of the audience that's listening today. And I think that what I'm so excited about is just what he has been working on and what is to come for so many other developers in the ecosystem. So I'll go ahead and drop some of the links to his projects. What I will also share is just maybe two things. I'll maybe I'll do like a write-up or some sort of content on infrastructure. If you guys want to learn about how to build proper infrastructure or find toolings for infrastructure, I can also share some of the open source libraries that we at OutSystems are using for developers that are building with our IDE. Uh, you know, I think that's about it. I mean, I think otherwise, I hope you guys can join me at OSCC or the OutSystems Developer Conference. I'll go ahead and drop the registration. I'll be there. Say hi. I'm also on Twitter. If you just want to DM me and you have some feedback, or you have some questions, or you have an idea, or you want to be a guest, let me know. You got it going on. I'm so excited. All right, y'all. Chat next time.